Welcome back, Three Crosses family, to our Going Deeper podcast. AJ Venegas here. I'm the director of Life Groups and Discipleship here at Three Crosses. Today, we're going into 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. With that, let's go deeper. Well, welcome to week six. We're sitting down again with Pastor Danny Strange. Pastor Danny, welcome back to the hot seat. Thanks for inviting me back. It's good to be here. Awesome. We're going to jump right into our content this week. First uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. It's quite of a uh, big chunk of scripture, so we'll break it down as best as we can here in the podcast. But before we do that, I want to talk about just getting our bearings straight for this passage. Uh, commentators frequently point out that Chapter 1, verses 13, all the way to chapter 2, verses 10, are one stream of thought. And so we've been following this series. Uh, we've been seeing, you know, things that are grounded in this trinity, this exordio, um, this these commands, set your hope, be holy, live out your time, love one another deeply, rid yourselves, crave. We've been also following this pattern of like new spiritual birth, craving pure spiritual milk, all these different things um, in First Peter so far. And I know personally reading this, it's been kind of hard to track. There's been a lot of images thrown at us. There's been a lot of different uh, just items thrown at us. It's almost as if Peter's just thinking off the top of his head and then writing. And so for the first question here, help us get our bearings straight because it seems like Peter's going to try to land the plane here. You mentioned a ton of different ways that we can look to find handholds to figure out how to wrap our minds around what's happening in the text. And all of those are great. And you're right. We, You look at the structure of the text. We look at commands in the text, images in the text, the flow of the argument. A couple things to get our bearings in this passage is it does feel like this is the end of the first section of the book. You know, after this week, we're going to take a little break and then dive into the next section on September 11th. And so really looking at the structure of this, we see that in some ways he's kind of summing up what's happened in this first section, but also moving the argument forward. And so you mentioned a lot of those internal things that Peter tries to equip us with to stand firm in a strange world as strangers here, right? Uh, Craving the right things, moving away from our old desires, having a renewed perspective and trials. And in this last section, it feels like at a overarching level, Peter is equipping us to have a mindset to step into a hostile world where insults and things are being hurled at us all the time. And one way that we can kind of find our bearings within this text um, is by looking at the structure of the text itself. So if, if you grab the commentaries, I know you're reading along with me. I don't know if folks who are listening at home are reading along with us, but if you grab Karen Job's commentary, she does a great job of kind of showing how this text is structured with five different pairs of verses. And so I'll just kind of walk you through them real quick so you can kind of see how a a story arc for this one passage comes. The first pair talks about living stones, Christ and us. We're living stones. Then the second pair talks about spiritual house. We are a spiritual house. Christ is the cornerstone of that house. Then she talks about uh, never being shamed, that we are never to be shamed and that Jesus brings honor to us. Then she talks about the downfall of those who uh, don't believe in Jesus, who reject the living stone, and then talks about the stumbling destiny of those folks. Then she talks about our new identity and the way that we receive God's mercy. So she points out the way that these five different pairs of thoughts come out, and we kind of get to see this picture of how the text flows. As this house is built, we learn what Jesus does to bring us honor, what he does to bring shame to those who don't believe. And so you can kind of start to wrap your mind around what's happening 
in this passage by seeing the structure of the text itself within the structure of this section of the book. It's quite fascinating to get into biblical studies because we get so familiar with a person's writing. You know, I'm quite familiar with Paul's writing because there's just a lot of it. And so we see this type of writing and then we get Peter who doesn't write much. And so it's just this interesting feel. So I think helping us get our bearings straight throughout reading the scriptures ourselves is going to be good for our a habit of reading scripture. And so we'll dive right in uh, to our verses here. I'm going to read a big chunk of verses because they all kind of uh, pertain to themselves. First um, Peter chapter two, verses four to eight. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture, it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. So I want to break these passages down uh, by the imagery that you kind of outlined um, there to kind of get our bearings straight. The first one I want to talk about is this living stone imagery. And so this is what Peter opens us off uh, in these passages. So could you take us a little bit deeper into this stone imagery and what Peter is trying to do here? Yeah. So the, the stone imagery, as he builds it out and talks about there's a cornerstone and a temple built upon it, is really drawing a lot of attention to the construct of the temple in the Old Testament and in first century Judaism. This was a, a major part of Uh, Jewish religious worship. Jesus talked about the temple a lot, but he also talked about the stone concept a lot. He would quote some of these, uh, Jesus quoted some of these passages himself um, in some parables in the gospels where he talked about uh, being the cornerstone and what it means to be the cornerstone. And so this stone imagery connects with himself, connects with the temple, pulls from the Old Testament. And this idea of living stones is something that Peter is starting to draw out as he's helping us to understand the role of us as the church, these living people, or even Jesus, a living cornerstone, uh, to kind of recreate for us in our minds the imagery of the temple, but with human beings who are alive, not with actual stones that make a building like they're used to seeing in Jerusalem. One of the things we've been trying to give you guys, our listeners, is some practices as we read scripture um, so that you can kind of read along with us and with Peter's thoughts here. And so one of them is looking at some Old Testament passages. And then when you say or when you see for in scripture, it says it's good to pause and kind of reflect on, okay, where is this passage coming from? And so I want to do that here with this stone imagery because he's pulling from different texts with this stone. So um, the first couple of verses here are Isaiah 28, Psalm 118, Isaiah 8. Is there anything special about Peter referencing those specific verses that you see here? 
Well, these these different passages in the Old Testament are significant because they're uh, in meaningful places, talking about uh, maybe God's future rejection of Israel or moving the covenant blessings away from them. Um, you pointed out, AJ, as we were talking through it, that interestingly, I don't know if this is why Peter was choosing this, but for most of these passages, uh, the passage immediately following this passage is one about the Savior who would come, right? So it's possible that this is on Peter's mind. It's also possible, right? You mentioned Paul and Peter using Old Testament differently and having different writing styles. Uh, One of the things that we've learned about Peter is that he likes to draw out a lot of imagery and moments from his time with Jesus, walking with Jesus throughout life. And we know that at least one of these passages is one that Jesus referred to a lot, uh, the passage about him being the cornerstone, um, specifically when he shared the parable of the tenants, of these tenants who were supposed to be in charge of this vineyard, and they kept squandering their responsibilities. They kept killing the messengers. They finally killed the son of uh, the landowner. And so now uh, God is going to come in. The real landowner is going to come in and take his vineyard back to himself. Um, And then Jesus quotes that Old Testament psalm afterwards talking about the chief cornerstone. And so it's also possible that Peter is drawing from uh, just remembering when Jesus was talking about shuffling from Jewish epicenter of worship to now a Christian epicenter of worship, that this was an Old Testament passage that Jesus himself um, was quite fond of referring to. So the imagery may have come from his relationship with Jesus himself. One of the things we both noted in our notes and that aligned was this first reference in Isaiah 28 verse 16. Um, commentators suggest that it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen, and in our NIV it says precious, uh, the Greek word there is entime, uh, cornerstone. That could also be translated honor. And so this kind of opens us up to a conversation about this cornerstone providing honor. Um, it also comes up, now to you who believe this stone is precious, which again, it says hetime in Greek, which is the same word, honor. This stone is honor. And so one of the things we were struck by is this conversation about this honor shame culture that many of us in the West aren't familiar with. But um, just this idea, could you explain a little bit more on what's going on here in this sense, if this word could be actually translated as honor? Yeah, one of the commentators drew out the the context of First Peter that uh, in their culture, this honor shame dynamic was a dynamic that was used often to try to conform folks to the cultural mindset at the time. And so this commentator said, you know what, one thing that might happen and be happening in the lives of these this diaspora community of believers throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, is that folks are literally hurling insults, I guess not literally hurling, but figuratively, <laughs> but literally insulting uh, Christian people uh, with their words and trying to bring shame on them for their belief set in an effort to conform them to the mentality and worldview of the Greco-Roman world. Mm. And so it's possible that Peter is saying, hey, let's turn that on its head. Let's invert that and say, you know what? Jesus is the one who is honorable and brings true honor. And those who hurl insults at you are actually the ones who should be ashamed of themselves and will be shamed, right? He talks a little bit about later, they they stumble because they disbelieve the message. And he kind of resets where real honor and real shame comes from. So this might be kind of using this honor-shame dynamic to rewire the brains of these folks who are used to being shamed in an effort to conform them to the worldview of the world outside, which is something we talked a little bit about on Sunday, that uh, Christianity in our context is 
still pretty close to 50% of folks here in the Bay uh, would identify as Christians. 75% identify as uh, people of faith in one of the major world religions. 80% of people believe in God. And yet culturally, it feels like Christianity is not something to be proud of. It's something to be ashamed of. And so it's interesting that we kind of have a similar cultural dynamic, and yet the pressure to conform to the worldview here in the Bay is less acute, like people just shaming us publicly for being Christians, but we feel it. We sense that same shame coming at us. And so Peter may be trying to rewire even our minds as well to say, no, what you believe is truly honorable, uh, and the folks who are stumbling over Christ, that's actually a worldview that brings shame. The second reference there is Psalm 118, um, which we know is right before Psalm 119. Psalm 118 was uh, this Hallel praise psalm uh, that was sung by the Levites as they slaughtered the lamb. So there might be something uh, referenced there. And then Isaiah 8, what follows is Isaiah 9, which is unto us a child is born and all those scriptures. Um, and it talks about it being this stone being a sanctuary or something to trip upon. And then... Um, did you know that seven times Jesus is referenced as the stone in the New Testament? And you mentioned the parable of the tenants. Uh, Peter does it in Acts 4. Uh, Ephesians 2 has it. Romans 9 has it. And now here in First Peter. So uh, the stone imagery is strong. And, and so, and yeah. I think, too, one of Jesus' um, most powerful sermons, we think of the Sermon on the Mount, we think of these things that resonate with our time, but one of the most powerful sermons of Jesus in Matthew 23 to 25, the Olivet Discourse, uh, is talking about the end times coming, um, and he refers to this idea of the temple falling down, being destroyed, right? The not one stone will be left on another. And this was a an idea that ultimately was part of Jesus' trial and crucifixion, this idea that he's going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, right? So we know that Jesus was talking about his body. That's what the New Testament authors tell us. But really for those people, they're struggling with this, hearing Jesus talking about stones toppling down. And if you go to Jerusalem, you stand at the foot of the temple and look up to where even Jesus would have stood at his temptation in Matthew 4, wherever that is, you realize just the the power and crushing power. If one of the stones did fall, the 60 feet or whatever it is from the the pinnacle of the temple, which is what, remember, Satan says to Jesus, throw yourself off of this and the angels will catch you. It's quite a fall. And so this idea of stones falling and tumbling and the temple being destroyed is a powerful image that Jesus used often. And we know he was talking about his body as the living stone that would be destroyed. And yet I don't, I can't recall Jesus ever referring to himself as living stone, hmm. but Peter definitely picked up on this idea that when Jesus was talking all the time about the temple, he was actually talking about himself. And this new temple that would be formed is one that even though his body was crushed in a sense, he, from the foundation piece, became the cornerstone this new living temple was built upon. And Peter could have said that, hey, this stone imagery could be my name, right? It could be the rock upon which this found this church is built on. Or, you know, it could have been these individual stones, but we don't really see references to individuals. We see this collective stones being built into something, which is where I want to go with this next question. Uh, we see spiritual house, spiritual sacrifice, holy priesthood language. Could you take us a little bit deeper into those topics? Yeah, when, when Peter is talking about the temple for 
everything we've you and I've said so far is really just about the physical stones of the temple, that edifice that is the temple. And yet we know the temple was the hub of religious worship there in Jerusalem. Right? The Jewish people believed that Jerusalem was literally the center of the universe, and at the center of Jerusalem was the temple, and at the center of the temple was the Holy of Holies, which is where God himself dwelt with his people here on planet Earth. And so it's a beautiful building, but what happens inside the temple is more important than the temple itself. And so God dwells in the temple, which Peter will allude to here about dwelling among his people, but also the, the humans that exist in the temple are these priests who would go into the temple and they would serve God. They'd bring worship. They would bring sacrifice. They would light incense. They would come into the holy place and they would do religious acts. And so Peter is shifting now our mentality in the same way he shifted it away from the physical stones of the temple, Peter shifts it away to what happens within the temple and says, now we are this royal priesthood. We are the ones who offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. We are this new group of people who do the work inside the temple as well. That's a big theme in Isaiah 1. It's uh, what Isaiah is calling the Israelites out on Micah 6 verses 6 to 8, talking about, you know, he has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And so those spiritual sacrifices become this very powerful imagery. There's one line in this section that stood out to me as I was looking at it. It's the very end of verse 8 that says, They stumble because they disobey the message. And then it says, Which is also what they were destined for. And so this is the skeptical lens question of this week. What is he saying that people are destined to stumble? Yeah, destination of human beings uh, and the, you know, the theological term predestination or the ordination of God for the eternal destiny of human beings is a hot topic, but it's also a topic that comes up a lot in First Peter. Right? We talked the very first week, this idea of we are a people who are predestined to follow Jesus. And so we wrestled with that tension of, well, of course, God opens our eyes to the gospel and we choose him freely, but at the same time, God has ordained that we would follow him. He foreknew that we would be conformed to the image of his son. And so there, there's this concept of predestination of human beings and the chosenness that we are as a people, which is a word chosen that he uses a ton in this very specific passage, right? So Jesus is the stone that was rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, right? We are a, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, right? So this choosing language is coming up a lot. And so we've so far only been enlightened and encouraged by the fact that we are chosen, but now Peter flips the script a little bit and says, hey, folks who stumble over Christ in the same way that you're chosen to follow him, in the same way Christ was chosen to be that cornerstone, they were chosen. They were destined, right? A slightly different word, but they were chosen uh, to stumble and fall. And so that's a different kind of tension, right? We think about advanced topics like double predestination and this concept of like, well, if we're chosen for heaven, are people chosen from hell? And in the same way, we live in this tension of like, no, all of us are destined for hell. All of us choose that path ourselves. All of us are born with the sin of Adam. And yet, as I studied this and wrestled with this, I feel like Peter is less trying to give us a lesson on double predestination <laughs> or some uh, you know, Calvinistic reform doctrine here, and more... Just trying to encourage the folks who are being verbally abused at the hands of uh, pagans in this world to say, hey, listen, when these people are hurling insults at you, like we said on Sunday in the sermon, they, they are not tripping over you. They're tripping over Jesus and they're falling into you. And 
this is this is an issue between them and God. This is not an issue between them and you. This is not about you. This is something a pathway that they've chosen has been chosen for them. This is the destiny that they're a path on a path walking down. And so you can take heart in knowing, uh, in a sense, that this is not a personal thing. This is something going on between them and God that's manifesting in the abuse that you experience here on the planet. Yeah, and if you go back and listen to the previous episodes, you'll find us wrestling with the same tension, right, of just this partnership between human responsibility and God's sovereignty, and, you know, the tension continues. So I love that. First uh, Peter 2, verses 9 to 10, you mentioned it. It's just this beautiful kaleidoscope of biblical imagery for God's people, and there's a lot of connections to Israel. So I want to read it and then just walk us through that list of uh, explanations that list of identification markers for God's people. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." So let's start with chosen people, chosen race, this, this idea that's going on here. What do, you, what do you say about that? I love this paragraph. This is one of my favorite paragraphs in the New Testament. You'll notice I quote it more than anything else when I'm doing benedictions or uh, just thinking about who we are as worshipers of God. Um, and it's beautiful as a standalone, but it's even more beautiful in the context of this passage because we've been talking a lot about the temple and the, the living priesthood that we are within the temple, the royal priesthood that Peter brings out here. And I think we need to understand the context, too, living in this Gentile world, that in the temple in Jerusalem, that was not a place where Gentiles could dwell. This was a place where the closer you were to God and the purer you were in terms of racial Israel, you're a Levite, right? You're chosen by lot to go in the Holy of Holies, right? If uh, In order to get into God's presence in the temple, you had to meet all these criteria, right? So there's a court of Gentiles outside the temple. There's a court of women getting a little closer. There's a court where men can come, a court for the priests, a court just for the chosen priests. And so in the literal, physical, stone-based temple, there was a lot of distance you had from God because of your race, your gender, your background, whatever it may be. And one of the things Peter does here is he dismantles all of that, right? Mm-hmm. He says, you, you, the church, are a chosen uh, race, right, or chosen ethnicity. This idea that in the gospel, it transcends all racial and ethnic boundaries, right? Like Paul says in Galatians 2.20, there's no longer slave or free, male or female, right? We are all one in Christ Jesus. So he's starting to bring with all of these different phrases, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, saying that this new community is not only allowed in the temple, but you are the church. You are the church that transcends racial boundaries, religious boundaries, national boundaries. You are a people for God's own possession, and you are his covenant people. You've received his mercy, which is a concept we've talked about a couple times in here. It's a beautiful picture that we, from every tongue, tribe, and nation, are equal in the sight of God at the foot of the cross and as we serve and worship here in this temple called the church. The reason I love this passage is because it's just so rich in Old Testament history as well. And so if you're interested in looking into some different texts, you can go to Isaiah 43, uh, 20, verses 20 to 21. Uh, Exodus 19, verses 5 to 6 is a big one here. Um, you know, just thinking about this holy nation concept, Genesis 12. Uh, verse 2, and then this imagery of Hosea, which is an interesting book to pull from, Hosea chapter 1 and chapter 2. 
just this imagery of a harlot and Hosea being called to stay in a relationship with somebody who has prostituted themselves out to, you know, other people. It's just a, this powerful imagery of, you know, even if God's people are, you know, unfaithful to him, he remains faithful. And so that's just a powerful imagery. And so we're wrapping up this episode. Um, something really fun. I was saying seven times Jesus is the stone in the New Testament. We see seven church descriptions in this list of, of things. And then we also see seven Old Testament passages referenced. And so I love this idea of completion and sevens. It might be something, it might not, it might just be my lying eyes, but I love the idea that this is like the completion of this section. And so Pastor Danny, could you just give us a hint as to what Peter is doing and where he wants to kick us off into this next step. Absolutely. I love that, you know, sometimes we geek out, it feels like too much on all the symmetry of the scriptures, but it's there, right? Even you're bringing up Hosea. And I love that Hosea 1 starts with this idea of God saying, name your child, not my people, because you are not my people. And then by the end of Hosea, it's a book of the covenant love of God for his people, even when they reject him. And Peter draws on that and says, once you are not a people, right? Lo ami, I think was the Hosea 1.9. But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. It all ties together. So this section ends with uh, this concept of equipping ourselves to go out into the world and experience suffering. And so the next section in Peter is all the different types of acute suffering we do experience. How to stand up under unjust government regimes. How to stand up under an unjust uh, way of life, right? Slaves and masters is, is in that next section. What do you do when you're married to someone who's not a believer and you get verbal abuse at home from your spouse, right? How do we suffer like Christ suffered and suffer in the context of local church? And so we're going to talk about suffering. <laughs> we're going to talk about living and finding hope in a context where it feels like everything's coming against you. And so we've talked kind of about the heady concepts and the heart concepts, but we're going to get real specific as we start talking about the different places in the world where Christians experience uh, hardship just for following Christ. I'm personally thrilled for these conversations because they seem so relevant to our cultural moment. So I'm just super excited for the back end of the series. But in the meantime, the next couple weeks, we're going to have some uh, different types of services. One of them will be Celebrate New Life. So we're going to get some people in here to talk about the discipline of celebration and talk us through baptism a little bit and some, hopefully some other speakers as well. But um, in the meantime, Pastor Danny and I, like we've been mentioning, are reading the same commentaries, and we came across this guy who comes out with really good quotes. His name is Eugene Boring, which we need like a new name for him because Boring sounds like a tough last name to have. So we'll call him E.B. for uh, all intents and purposes. But here's the quote. The author addresses readers who must decide how to live as faithful Christians in the midst of a suspicious and hostile society. He has responded to this need not by immediately giving a list of specific do's and don'ts, but by presenting on a grand scale a historical understanding of the reader's new identity in Christ and the basic orientation it calls for, hope, holiness, love, and nourishment in the divine word that sustains Christian existence. This theological grounding has not been randomly presented, but with a view to the specific calls to Christian action that are about to begin but which could not be addressed until the reader's identity was established. Who you are is basic to what you are to do. 
Of the 35 direct imperatives in 1 Peter, only five have been met so far. The emphasis is about to shift as on the basis of the indicative of God's act and the believer's new identity, specific responses are given to the question of how then should we live? Pastor Danny, thanks for hanging out with us in week six. 